It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey everyone, good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk Radio uh, and joining me as I uh, talk to some great guests today. I'm uh, really uh, privileged to have been out of the country for a few weeks and uh, made it back safe despite all the sort of temper tantrum the world seems to be having right now. So anyways, as we kind of look at the show to kind of talk to you about what it's all about, I personally have had uh, the privilege of meeting so many inspiring leaders at different events and and groups that I'm a part of. And as I have the privilege of talking to these great people and learning from them, realize we really should have a show where everyone else can listen in on our conversation. And so this show is really designed to give you that opportunity to listen in, hear some of the topics, hear the cool things maybe we might talk about, and get some some great ideas for yourself uh, that maybe you can use down the road. So Talent Talk is live here every Tuesday, and unless I go on vacation like last week, but uh, we're live here every Tuesday just about uh, Pacific Standard Time at 1 p.m. And uh, don't forget, if you can't tune in live, uh, most people actually digest this uh, via our podcast, which you can find on iTunes by typing in Talent Talk, or you can also go to iHeartRadio on any device or app or browser, what have you, uh, and type in uh, Talent Talk. So we've amassed a, a really great following. I think uh, just about every week uh, while I've been gone, about 300,000 of you each week came in and downloaded one of the shows. So that's still pretty good considering we didn't have any, uh, anything anything fresh to, to give you guys. But anyways, big thank you to everyone who's following the show, talking about it, tweeting us, everything. Really appreciate your support. So uh, if you have any questions, uh, hear from my guests coming up. We love to get, uh, you know, listener questions. So tweet them to us. Uh, even if it's after the show, you can still tweet the question. And if you follow at PeopleG2, you can see that we've got a live kind of tweet uh, broadcast that goes on with that. And you can usually we will include uh, the Twitter handles of the guests on there so you can ask questions directly to all of us. Even after the fact, we're happy to keep that conversation going. So, uh, But if you have a live question, my producer Mike can try to feed me in that question and we'll work it into the show. All right, so let's go ahead and get uh, to my guests. My, my first guest today will be Alexa Fletcher, uh, founder and managing partner of Alexa Fletcher & Associates. And then after the commercial break, we'll have on uh, Mark Friedrich, uh, the director of global talent and uh, manager at IOR Global Services. So uh, Mark will join me at the, like I said, the second half of the show. But let's go ahead and get to our first guest, uh, Alexis, uh, Alexa Fletcher. Uh, welcome to the show. Chris, thank you. I'm really happy to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm happy that you're happy. So maybe you can tell everyone a little bit about yourself and about your company and uh, so we can get kind of that baseline of who you are and what you're doing. That sounds like a plan. So um, I founded Alexa 
started my company, Alexa Fletcher and Associates, uh, about four years ago. So I had been in Big Four Consulting and um, various HR executive roles, global, U.S., et cetera, for about 25 years. So I was definitely ready to go out on my own. Um, I work with clients in two areas, um, talent management uh, broadly and then career consulting. Um, so in the talent management space, I work primarily with CHROs and other C-suite leaders to help them define and build or integrate talent management uh, capabilities. So an example, um, Chris, would be I have an engagement right now with the COO where I'm helping um, him with his leadership team to find a compelling employee value proposition. Um, the second area I uh, work with clients in is in career consulting, and I focus on a couple of um, segments, if you will. So I work with small to mid-sized organizations, helping them design innovative career paths that make sense for the business model. I also work with professionals um, and executives who are navigating career challenges and transitions. I should probably add I'm based in California, and I work primarily in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, you know, I guess kind of in hearing what, knowing about your background and kind of hearing what you had to say, I guess maybe the first area we might jump into is talking about optimizing talent because this is something that comes up a lot in the show. And I like to kind of break it down into two areas, sort of what are the larger companies doing, what are the mid-large-sized companies, and what are the smaller organizations doing? Because we have kind of that wide range of listener here that has all different size companies. So maybe you could talk about what are some of the differences that you're seeing and how they're achieving this goal of trying to op optimize the talent that they have kind of based on the size of that organization. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to say that theoretically, whether you are a leader in a large organization or a small organization, I think some of the same levers are available to optimize talent. So if I'm the CEO of a large organization um, or a small one, um, I have the ability to create a work environment that's going to help my employees grow professionally. Um, I think the big difference um, between large and small is going to be resources and scale. Um, so let me just play that out for a second. Um, in a large organization, um, there may be the resources and I would say even the internal architecture to support a multi-level dual career path program. Whereas in a smaller organization, um, such as uh, the type of organization on my clients have, they're going to need something that's more flexible, that is, uh, will, will highlight uh, lateral as well as some vertical career uh, pathing. Um, and might even incorporate team leadership roles as a way to develop talent. So that would be maybe an example. Yeah, I mean, certainly resources is going to be the biggest one in the kind of flexibility standpoint. A small organization is really reliant on that one person to probably do more than what their job title even sort of indicates. Uh, and more, like said, large organization may have that ability to say, hey, go take three months and, you know, go learn how to do this thing. Um, and they can they can spare that person for a period of time to go and become better as a, as a small organization. They might say, <laughs> go figure that out in your own time and help us out while you're still doing your regular job. And we certainly have seen examples of that, which which can make it really difficult for small organizations to to help their talent grow, to help them get better, and to help them 
become that person they need to be for the organization next year or the year after. Um, did you do you see that that kind of thing happen? I mean, is that where they're maybe they're falling short, where they're they have to end just replacing somebody instead of you know uh, helping them progress, which is something maybe a large company has the resources to do. Um, you know, actually, what what I'm seeing is with smaller organizations, because there is so much of an investment in bringing on board talent with limited resources. Um, I'm seeing more of a commitment to try to keep that talent and, and help it grow. Um, I'm also seeing um, because people in, in smaller organizations wear so many hats and because often work um, well in large and small done in teams, um, one of the levers that smaller organizations are using is uh, team leadership um, as a mechanism to develop talent. So sometimes what I have seen um, in larger organizations Maybe a tendency to um, put, I don't want to say weaker players, but let's just say less, uh, less strong players in uh, positions um, on teams um, because they don't want to lose um, the strength um, in the organization. Um, whereas I think in um, smaller organizations, there's more of a tendency to say, hey, you know, I see this as a mechanism to develop my talent, and they're really rolling with that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, maybe we can kind of jump to then, you kind of talked about putting people in those different positions, and that really gets into having good leadership and being able to see those patterns and decide what's best for the organization. So maybe as we kind of focus on the non-strategic leadership, what are some of the areas that you see companies really need, what, what do they need to look to first if they're going to really maybe reach that next level of growth or that big goal that they're looking for? So I, I would I would first maybe break that down by saying, um, as we know, companies grow in a couple of different ways. So organically, um, where they have 100% ownership of their products and services, but they're creating and selling inorganically. So they may participate in JVs, joint venture, uh, joint ventures, mergers, acquisitions, et cetera, or they may take a hybrid model. I will say that regardless of which path they choose. In my experience, um, CEOs that are really focused on growth are looking at a couple of levers. They are taking the quality of their leadership talent very seriously. Um, they know that this is going to make or break their organization, and I think longer term, their ability to really implement a growth strategy. So you're seeing a lot of investment in tools, um, evidence-based coaching, et cetera, even amongst smaller um, organizations. Secondly, um, they are very intentional about the design of their culture. Um, so some of these CEOs may have had the experience in the past of working in cultures um, that sort of happened by accident, um, so to speak. Um, so they're thinking and working very deliberately to develop a certain type of culture um, in their organization. We can talk about that in a second. I think the last thing I'm, I'm really seeing is that they're focused on and are very clear about the characteristics of the candidates that they want to employ at their company. Um, and they are very deliberately creating an employee value proposition that's attractive to them. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And so if you're kind of putting those things together, we talk a lot about uh, culture here um, on the show. And that's an area, if you can be deliberate about it, I mean, you kind of mentioned being accidental about it, and sometimes it works out, and sometimes it's an absolute disaster. And even if it's intentional, sometimes it can be a disaster as well, because it may not be what you thought it was going to be. Maybe if we kind of slide here to that kind of human side, I know you mentioned 
mergers and acquisitions, and this is a topic that you, I believe that you speak about as well. Maybe if we kind of look at that for a second, what is it that's important, you know, from a concept standpoint for companies to remember? So if we're going to grow through a merger and acquisition um, and we want to make sure our culture and our people and everything are, are kind of thought of, what are some of the things that you're really kind of looking at or talking about in your own messaging? So, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of organizations about this. Um, I recently came back from a CFO summit um, where I was talking uh, on behalf of the CFO and the finance organization um, to um, a group of people who were going for a merger. Um, so let me, let me step back, and I would say I would sum up my message in really two phrases. First, be proactive early on. And then secondly, I would say dig deep, and I, I can expand on that. So from my perspective, um, unless an organization is acquiring intellectual property alone, and that certainly happens um, in Silicon Valley and other places, fundamentally people are the lifeblood of organizations. Um, they're leading, creating, they're instrumental in delivering um, goods and services. So. In M&A transactions, mismanaging people um, and culture, I, I might add, is going to drain the value, the economic value of the transaction very, very quickly. So um, during even pre-due diligence, um, the leaders of um, acquisitive organizations have the opportunity to begin to proactively assess things like cultural compatibility, um, a component of which is leadership style, uh, workforce demographics, and they can do this even at a high level. And so I think being proactive early on at the onset um, is, is really important to uh, setting the tone, if you will, for success down the road. Um, the second point, um, when, I, when I say digging deep, what I'm really referring to there, I think, is the need to anticipate and to understand and to plan for the impact of the change um, that will come with the merger, the acquisition, JV, et cetera, at an individual and not just an organizational level. You know, an example of that is often what I have seen um, is communication uh, may be handled at an organizational level with email, maybe large group meetings, et cetera. I encourage um, leaders on the engagements that I'm working on, instead of relying on things like email, to really um, reach out and communicate, for example, with remote sales offices at the onset of a merger and make it a point to connect with employees face-to-face -face and establish, I think, that more personal and that more human connection. And, and that can really pay dividends further down the road. Well, and I've seen some really kind of uh, gigantic examples where companies will spend obscene amounts of money to make the merger happen. Um, they want the merger because of, you know, the, all of the good things that come along with it, but yet completely ignore the human component, right? Is it a good fit? Can they retain the people? Will it work with their current leadership? Um, you know, all, all these different things. It, it almost seems completely ignored more times than not. And yet, when you look at why did a merger or an acquisition fail, I, I find very few examples that don't lead back to, well, it was a human issue. Um, you know, there was some component there. The, we couldn't keep the people. We couldn't keep the, the knowledge that was there. 
Um, you know, our cultures were incompatible. I mean, is that similar to what you've seen as well? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, I wrote a piece, um, I'm going to say about three, four years ago, on looking at cultural compatibility um, with mergers and acquisitions. And um, too often um, what I've observed is that people get caught up, as you're mentioning, in um, kind of the, uh, the cadence of the deal um, and don't take the time to look at that. And, and if, if there is a deliberate approach of trying, it can make all the difference in the yeah, absolutely. Well, I know one of the things that uh, members of today's workforce are really looking for in, in companies, you know, kind of meeting the needs of the employees. Uh, that's really become a, a big focus. Um, uh, and that means a lot of different things. But maybe what are some of the key components to talent management strategy that maybe benefits both the needs of the business and the needs of the employee, especially you know, as you're kind of looking at this value proposition you mentioned earlier for one of your clients, and you're also looking at helping people in their placements, are there some suggestions or advice that you have for companies on how to kind of reconcile those two different, you know, ideas? Uh, Chris, I would say that that's a $64,000 question. So, um, <laughs> you know, today we have five generations in the workforce. Um, and those generations have um, a really, really broad range of employee needs and behavioral preferences, et cetera. So if I'm a millennial at Google, um, which is around the corner for me, I may place a premium on things like dry cleaning, cafeteria, you know, the reward package, et cetera. Whereas if I'm a baby boomer working for, um, I think, of one of my healthcare clients, um, I may really care about retirement benefits, and that may be a lot more attractive to me than dry cleaning services. So, you know, so the, the question around, you know, how best to balance it is, is really, I would respond to that by saying it depends. So um, my longer answer is going to be that I think a company really needs to do um, three things to, um, you know, achieve this balance. First, I think understand at a deep level their talent requirements, the demographics of their talent uh, requirements, and their, their business constraints. So what you can do around your talent strategy in a tech environment um, is may not be exactly the same thing that you can uh, roll out in a manufacturing environment, as an example. Um, I think secondly, either bring on board or enlist the expertise you know, of, of someone or a team to craft your, your value proposition. Um, what is the experience that you want your talent um, to have within your workforce um, and, and in your employment environment? And then I think, um, lastly, they need to have the ability to really operationalize the value propositions in their business environment, um, whether it's, you know, a unique talent acquisition strategy um, a talent engagement strategy, et cetera. So, um, you know, I can give you an example of this, if that would help. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. If you I'll, I'll pick on consulting for a second because I, I come from that environment. Um, so I would say historically, if you wanted to work for a consulting firm, and maybe in particular the big four, big eight firms, um, you would need to sign up for 100% travel, um, you would probably need to plan to work weekends, a lot of weekends, for your job. Um, so often, um, you know, the turnover, and I think it still is relatively high um, in these kinds of firms. 
I think over the past um, three to four, maybe even five years, there is a new breed of consulting firm um, that's really emerging. And the value proposition that they're making um, to their talent, um, millennials, Generation X, baby boomers, you name it, is um, work locally. You're going to have limited travel. You're going to work more normal working hours, um, maybe not nine to five, but maybe it takes six. Um, we're going to offer you lateral as well as vertical career pathing. Um, and we will pay competitively, but we may not pay the premium. So what they're doing effectively is they know their talent, they know the requirements and preferences of their talent, and they're crafting a value proposition and creating an employment environment that caters to that. And, and they're succeeding. So they're, they're not only capturing talent, um, but they're gaining consulting services market share. So I think that's a good example of a win-win, um, you know, a situation where they, they're meeting their business needs and they're also addressing those of their employees. And, and do you think that there's any differences there with kind of everything that you outlined as we look and kind of expand to this from an international market? Um, or do the those principles you think are kind of uh, parallel there? You know, uh, in terms of how to craft the, uh, the value proposition and balance business with employees? Yeah, I think so. I mean, do you, do you find that there's some differences there when you leave the, the United States that different, you know, that uh, different organizations or maybe just global organizations have to deal with that kind of add on to that formula? You know, um, I, that's a good question. So um, if you had asked me that question 10 years ago, um, I would have said that um, U.S. companies were, were leading the way um, with their talent management practices, um, and I think they were doing that out of necessity. So the U.S. has historically, say versus um, maybe Europe as an example, had a more mobile workforce, they've had higher participation from certain workforce demographics, um, women as an example. Um, the U.S. was also home to industries such as high tech. Um, so I, I think that all of these factors and even more factors required um, what I would suggest are more creative approaches around talent management. However, um, things have really changed. So I think with um, the impact of globalization, um, technology, um, there really is a, uh, let's call it a brave new global world of talent management. Um, so um, I think there are a lot of studies, you know, Deloitte had one that came out a few months ago that would support this, that really whether you're a CEO in the U.S. or the Netherlands or of a company in China, um, you are concerned about your leadership pipeline and you are in particular, concerned about whether your leaders have some of the new leadership skills, for example, knowing how to create an inclusive work environment. Um, so this isn't um, a concern of the U.S. employers alone. It's, it's, a, it's a global phenomenon now. So Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's fascinating stuff, um, and it's certainly a topic we could probably talk about for hours and hours and hours, but we're almost at the, here at the end of the show, and I'll make sure I ask you our two very important questions, and the first one is, well, is there a book that you're reading right now you might tell us about? Oh my gosh, absolutely. So, um, I am reading um, a book called The Hundred Year Life. Um, it's by Linda Grattan and Andrew Scott. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. I wish this book had been written and published um, a decade ago. 
Um, so Grattan is out of the London Business School. She leads the Future of Work Consortium. Um, and effectively, she and Scott are framing the impact of longer lifespans on individual career and life choices and on organizations. So I, I am encouraging clients, um, executives whom I know, people who are entering the workforce, um, in the workforce, and HR professionals to read it. Great. Well, how can people uh, get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about your company or uh, when to do business with you? Uh, they can call me. Um, and so my cell is 408-464-3349. Um, they could reach out to me on LinkedIn, Alexis Fletcher, or they could check out my website, um, www.alexafletcherllc.com. Alexa, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate all your knowledge and wisdom in these areas of talent, and uh, hopefully we can have you come back at some point and give us an update on what you've been doing. Chris, thank you. I've enjoyed it, and I appreciate you having me on your show. All right. Well, we'll be right back after this quick commercial break with our second guest, Mark Friedrich. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results, a cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge, with the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days, all with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Hey, welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Don't forget, you can uh, find us, well, all over the Internet. You know, you can go to talenttalkradio.com. You can go to Twitter. You can go to uh, iHeartRadio or iTunes on the podcast app. Uh, we're everywhere. So if you want to hear us, if you want to hear past shows and many of our fantastic uh, guests that we've had, you know, all these different areas you can find us. You can also go to the peopleg2.com blog, go to Talent Talk Radio, that section. We actually have a written uh, version of all the best things that our, our guests said, and we omit all the dumb things they said. Uh, just kidding, guys. But uh, And then we also list all the books and links and different things that they have listed there, so it's a great resource for you. But let's go ahead and get to the our second guest, uh, Mark Friedrich. He's the Director of Global Talent uh, and a manager at IOR Global Services. Um, so if you have a question for him, don't forget, tweet us um, at, at PeopleG2. Use that hashtag Talent Talk, and we'll try to get it into the show. Uh, but, Mark, welcome. Thanks, Chris. Uh, very happy to be part of the show. 
All right. Well, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing in that area of uh, global talent management? Sure thing. And uh, let me start with that pronunciation of my last name because that was a very Germanic uh, pronunciation. And uh, my interest in this field is uh, personal because I, I grew up with a German mother and a father from the U.S., from Ohio specifically. So um, we always spoke Jerglish around the house. And uh, that's really given me a different sense of, of identity and how I think and do things. So so it connects really nicely to, to this role because um, what we're trying to do when we're providing services in global talent management are um, helping companies identify and develop talent that's working in different cultural contexts. So, so for example, it could be, a, a, let's say, a leader from Irvine um, with new responsibilities in Southeast Asia. Um, so that's a situation we've run into a, a couple times with clients. Um, or it could be a manager leading a team with members from different countries and how to bring that team together more effectively. And, uh, or it could be you know, someone working on a project that's coordinating with different colleagues from uh, various global regions and might just be having virtual interactions. So we're really working on doing a lot of um, you know, talent development work in those kinds of environments. Well, and I, I'm glad you brought that up about your name. I, I just got back from being in Germany and Austria and the Czech Republic for, for three weeks. So it, it was funny to hear you say that. Uh, I, I was almost, almost starting to speak the language if the language requires more beer, more bratwurst, please. So, <laughs> yeah, genau. Ausgezeichnet. Sehr gut. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so I got really good at saying thank you, but uh, that was about it. So. Yeah. Uh, maybe uh, how difficult is it within a global company, do you think, to really integrate cultures and create that kind of cohesive employee team that, you know, as, as, as C-level leaders, we kind of expect and, and want our organizations to have? Right, right. Um, you know, integration is, I think, a very challenging thing. And, you know, we can see that just as we look at our own country uh, with recent events, art, when you've got different points of view, uh, like how to bring that together effectively, right? So when you're doing that globally uh, with different cultures and different languages, it gets even more challenging, more complex. And so, you know, what I think is important is it really requires um, deliberate efforts, uh, deliberate um, conversations with employees, with team members about how everyone's going to work together. So, so C-level leaders, for example, as, as you were bringing up, should really be uh, positioning the company culture in a way that's accessible and it should be built into the onboarding system so people have a sense of knowing how they're going to work on problems together or manage conflict. Uh, there are a lot of cultural differences around that. Decision-making styles can be very different um, and even celebrating a job well done. Um, how, how people celebrate uh, can be really, really different depending on company and culture and environment. So all those things really meet, need to be negotiated in a deliberate fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it can be something that, you know, maybe what you really need to focus on is agreement on the values and the processes and what the company is going to do and deliver as opposed to what I've seen a lot of times trying to get agreement about things that, maybe don't really matter to the bottom line or don't matter to what, you know, getting the organization to, to move forward. I mean, sort of that uh, old idea of having respect for, 
you know, people's opinions, but we all need to be on the same page on how we get from X, you know, from X to Y and Y to Z and so on. Is that, is that kind of jive with what you're seeing? Yeah, very much so. And, and so successful companies, let's, let's just pick on Google because they're pretty explicit about their culture and they attract talent from all over the world there in, in Silicon Valley, but throughout all other parts of, you know, Google's operations. And they're very clear, like if you go on their website and you check out their culture statements and such, you know, they're, they're clear about the values, the types of, um, the ways of approaching work. Uh, that they think are very important for their business. Um, they're a failure-friendly kind of work environment, um, which can be really difficult for a lot of cultures that are trying to grow up with uh, technical perfection, let's say, in the educational system, Germany being one of those. And mm -hmm. so, um, so even for them to be playful about, hey, this is how we want to approach making mistakes or trying things out, those are things that have to be communicated and, uh, and onboarded and really developed, you know, in, in all sorts of employees that are, that are coming from different parts of the world. So when it kind of, you talked about mistake-friendly, maybe we could talk about difficult-friendly here for a second. And then they worked with lots of different companies in various industries. And maybe what would you say is the most challenging or what sort of companies or industries are you seeing having the most challenges ahead of them given, you know, where we are as a, uh, as a world and kind of how things are operating right now? Uh, so, so many challenges, Chris. <laughs> it's, it's definitely uh, definitely quite a lot there. Um, you know, I would say that uh, what we're seeing, uh, we, have, we have a number of, of clients with really strong brands, and they happen to have uh, very strong headquarters in the United States. And they're also global. So they've got operations in a number of different regions and countries. And, and I think companies that have that kind of strong headquarters that's centralized, it's very challenging um, trying to get that level of integration and trying to make sure that the regions don't feel isolated or siloed. And oftentimes they don't share, like, learnings and, and better practices very effectively um, because it's so centralized at the headquarters. And, and the ones that really have challenges are the ones who are driving decisions um, out of headquarters for the regions. And maybe they didn't include or involve or, you know, bring in the region as well as they could have. And so there's a couple different clients that I need to protect but that I'm thinking of that are dealing with that. And it can create some really big trust issues, too. Um, if people just feel sort of left out of key decisions and how a product might roll forward, for example, or how they'll issue in a new service. So, so that's a big challenge. You know, companies need to think about you know, how well they're integrating with their regions around the world. Yeah, and, I mean, it's, something can make perfect sense here. I mean, it would work really, really well, let's say, you know, doing that launch for a product in Orange County, California, but if you're in Hanoi, <laughs> it may not work, it may completely fail, right? But yeah, that's the most opposite way you should do it. So, yeah, I mean, getting that local buy-in, it's amazing to me how often leaders sort of, whether it's, I don't know if it's just that they are confident, overconfident, uh, they've made such good decisions in the past that so often that they just assume that they know what's best, but when you bring in that, you know, especially if you have an part of your organization that's so different for, for whatever reason, uh, it may even be that they're from New York versus California. I mean, that, that could be different enough, but uh, yeah, it doesn't those, have those to be in a completely different right? country. Um, but you, you know, bring them in to have that I, conversation and get their story, input. Really so at least it's a part of your, your um, equation, and, right? Yeah, yeah. 
and and this is a uh, this is actually a Fortune 500 tech company. Can't can't cite who it is, of course. But um, and this was from a plant manager who is from Orange County, actually. And um, and it told me this story in confidence, but said, but please, you need to give the lesson uh, because uh, it's a very important example of what can go wrong if uh, headquarters is driving all this decision making, right? So. So this company had a plant uh, close to Jakarta in Indonesia, and they're making motherboards. And the plant was getting a lot of flawed motherboards. And uh, so the plant manager from Orange County was thinking, you know what, we ought to bring our headquarters practice of individual accountability. Like you can even imagine this workshop, right? You know, our culture is so big on individual accountability. So, like, we're going to bring that program to the plant, and we're going to bring the you know the facilitator from from Orange County and drive this workshop and put up the laminated you know posters around individual accountability and we're going to um, create a new process where um, the employee if they have a flawed motherboard they bring that to the supervisor and take accountability for it and and that should increase attention to you know detail and quality right that that's the idea and so they they invest in this substantial investment and they create the workshop and they drive the process forward and in the first couple days things seemed to be going great there were no flawed motherboards reported so supervisors are like wow this is amazing and um, at that time the plant facilities started having problems with the plumbing so they bring a plumber in to take a look at the lines and what do they find in the sewage lines but flawed motherboards wow so that yeah, wow, and so I remember I was like quiet doing it, and I was like, "Wow!" But the point is, like, people were so uh, kind of terrified to admit a mistake to the supervisor that they had taken individual accountability for the flawed product that they would rather jam it down to the sewer lines than than actually do the training, even though it was all signed off and delivered well and such. So it just shows how resistance how difficult it can be to adapt or integrate with other cultures. So it tends to take a lot of time. Well, and that's a matter of trust, that one, right? I mean, it's fine for you to yeah. say we want you to identify that that person who's doing the motherboards might be thinking not, they're just trying to figure out who isn't any good, and they're going to get that's rid right. of those people. And I, I, exactly I need this right. job. i got to feed my family. And, uh, yeah, 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 it sounds like it, it always seems to come back down to trust and that kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you don't feel safe, yeah, if you don't feel like, great. you know, you're not going to participate, you're not going to do those things that – you know, someone sitting in Orange County or wherever they are who thought of this great idea, you know, just hadn't, didn't think of it down to that level, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So is this something that we can kind of, you know, test for? Are, the, are these, you know, whether it's in leadership or in the people we want? I mean, are there, you know, if we go to, like, things like assessment tools, things like that, do you think that's a, a good way for us to kind of look at, you know, approaching this in a better way? Yeah, I I think so. And I and and for example, like within our services, we do use uh, a variety of assessments. And the thing that um, people will notice is that they have a very strong intercultural focus, and they're validated, you know, specifically for that kind of work. So even though we we will work with tools like the big tools like Myers Briggs or DISC, you know, very common developmental and teaming tools that are very useful, but um, they don't have that intercultural approach uh, that some of these niche uh, tools have. Uh, one of which I like is the Global Competencies Inventory. And this is a tool, it'll look at 16 different dimensions, and including something like 
emotional sensitivity. And what they mean by that is kind of communication style based. So how much a person looks at what someone doesn't say or like how they say it, their tone of voice, um, or what they leave out or how they use silence. So this is very important, right, because there are a lot of cultures in the world that uh, have a hard time saying no directly. Um, right. So they, it's, it, all, it it all depends, even like if we, the Spanish speakers, right? So it's like, see, 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 right? It's like if you're saying yes, 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 but it's, it's like how you say it, you know, that gives you the understanding of do you have buy-in or not, right? And so this becomes a really important skill uh, to listen for all of these nonverbal things, and uh, especially when you're working interculturally. And uh, so, so this tool will measure unique dimensions like that. Um, that I think is very useful. Um, and there's a, there's another one too. If if I have a bit of time, that the, uh, yeah. the this tool called it's kind of a learning system. Actually, I would say it's called Country Navigator. And so it, it's this online environment where people can get a very good uh, in-depth country information and uh, tips and advice on business culture and norms and behaviors. And then there's this little tool that's built into it. It's, it's a profiler tool. And when people take that, it measures their work style preferences on nine different dimensions. So people get a sense of their work style, which is really important to know, and then contrast it with norms and results from other countries like China, uh, Mexico, uh, India. And uh, so, for example, like, like one of the dimensions is task versus relationship. And, uh, and so uh, some people have a very strong task-oriented style, like where they want to get right to work on action items and, and project deadlines. And a relationship-oriented preferences are, will take much more time to build a personal relationship before they get started you know, on specific tasks. So you can have huge cultural differences on that dimension alone. It's really important to get people thinking about that and thinking about how they might need to adapt their style. So tools like that really help make that conversation real, and you can create some very good development plans for coaching and training and, and learning initiatives. So, so if we look at that maybe from a macro level, then is this really about a different in, difference in mindset, you know, whether it's – Maybe we might say this is a global mindset versus a domestic mindset or a local mindset. I mean, is that is that kind of what we're looking at here, that people have di different ways in which they might think about things or operate that would be really important for a global-based or global-type organization? Yeah, absolutely. I think mindset is key, and um, the more global we can get them, the better, because that's what's happening in the world. And, and you can see that through technology, how, how plugged in um, people are through social media, what's happening in different regions. It's, it's more integrated than ever before. So even if a person isn't physically moving, you know, to, uh, to a different country like Brazil, uh, they are experiencing the world, right? And so the more they can develop um, a global mindset, uh, the better that is for companies that are expanding and, and looking for consumers in different markets and trying to figure out, like, how to message that effectively. And, I mean, there's so many different ways that we can apply global mindset. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, uh, I think that, you know, you can, you can make some inroads into global mindset through reading, through online resources, like some TED Talks are pretty good. But it's, it's just not going to move the needle, like to really move the behavioral needle on global mindset, you've got to have experience. 
right? So like, so like your beer drinking in, in Austria, right? That was a, that's an experience that you're having with the language and with the different culture. It's very different than like listening to a talk about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, understanding some of those those little differences that you just don't get from being a tourist. Um, but if you maybe go and you stay in someone's home, if you're on vacation, then you might pick up some of those things uh, as opposed to being in a beer hall. And so we, uh, we actually had that experience. We had some friends that live there. And so we, got, we stayed a couple of days in their home. And so what they valued, what they focused on, what they watched, what they listened to, what they didn't do, what they didn't listen to, you know, all those things were, you know, it was interesting that they kind of had an impact on us, uh, you know, as far as understanding what was important to them, what, what wasn't, um, and how that differed from, from our day-to-day. And so, yeah, that, that sounds like it would be pretty important for somebody working in an organization, making those decisions to have at least some some vision on or some, uh, you know, exposure to as if, if not, you know, really being an active part of their, of, of their day-to-day uh, thought process. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like the experience you just described, you know, staying with uh, friends at their home, you know, those kinds of experiences are key for development. And so it's really hard to, to get those levels of, of leadership that, that we really need these kinds of experiences if a company's not providing that, right? So it's putting pressure on companies to develop all sorts of programs that create these kinds of experiences like, let's, let's call them rotations, or exchanges where uh, talent is exchanged from one region to another, uh, kind of like a study abroad, right? So, and, and a lot of this young generation talent um, they're expecting that from companies, so they're looking for it. So, like, the better a company can articulate, hey, if you come work for us, we can give you these kinds of global experiences, they're going to do a much better job attracting and engaging this next generation of talent. Yeah, absolutely. We talked a lot about the C-level people, and we talked about maybe those frontline people, the ones shoving the motherboards in the train. Um, but you know, there's a whole kind of class of people in the middle, these middle managers. And so, you know, what are some of their challenges or what, what's different for them in, in trying to handle a global workforce? Yeah. Managers, it's, it's very challenging because they're really right there engaging directly with teams for the most part. And, uh, and what they need to be reflecting on is management style. And so, like, everything we're talking about, we can interculturalize, right? So uh, there is not one management style that suits all of the world, although some companies certainly think and behave that way. But there are, there are many different approaches to how to manage human beings. And so, for example, uh, looking at, at U.S. management curricula and business schools, um, we often consider, actually not just often, but for the vast majority, micromanagement is considered an undesirable management style, right? So if someone's high touch, high contact, you know, peering over the virtual shoulder, not considered effective. But um, seen a lot of challenges with that, uh, having a participative approach that's not micromanagement with uh, Indian project engineers. So if a, if a middle manager is, is now managing a team of Indian project engineers, they're often um, very much blown away by the expectation of we want more inputs, we want more guidance, we want more oversight, because that's what we feel a manager's job is. 
And so it becomes a real confrontation for U.S. managers, and they're like, oh, they, then they have to think about how they're going to adapt. Like, do they need to adapt more to what the Indian expectation of management would be, or are they going to have to teach, you know, what a participative management style looks like? And that's really the heart of all this is, is adaptation, how much and why and what's the context we're all working in. And, and I think that's really what savvy managers have to be thinking a lot about these days. So one of our favorite questions to ask our guests, uh, and hopefully you have a, just a spectacular answer for us, so we'll see, uh, is, is what are you reading right now? Oh, my gosh, there's so much to read. Um, you know, we are always flooded with data, and uh, I'm, a big, I'm a big reader of what's happening in the world. When I get beyond that and I have a little time, you know, to look at a book, uh, you know, one of the books that, I, that I'm enjoying right now is called An Everyone Culture. And it's by Keegan and Leahy, and uh, they are uh, professors at Harvard. And um, in this book, they talk a lot about how companies need to create a culture that really uh, fosters uh, employee capabilities, like at all levels, like what you were just asking about, all the different levels. And, uh, and it's very critical to have development for what they call 21st century work, um, which is all about uh, responding quickly to new change, and we all we all we all know how fast things are changing on us, especially in technology. How we deal with ambiguity and complexity, right? So, um, so I find that to be a really uh, just important idea, you know, for companies to become uh, what they call deliberately developmental. Right, right. Well, it sounds like a great book, and just a reminder all of our listeners, we do put a uh, recap on our blog, and we'll have this book listed uh, there. So, in case you didn't have a pen and a paper ready, you can. Uh, get it there and uh, and take a look at it. But uh, final question here is how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about your company? Um, great. Well, I would say feel free to email me directly at mfrederick, uh, that's F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K, at iorworld.com. And you can also check out our company website at www.iorworld.com. Well, Mark, uh, thank you again uh, for, for joining us today and uh, providing such great information. Really enjoyed having you on the show. Thanks, Chris. Really enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, we'll try to have you come back here at some point. Uh, but, again, thank you to both my guests, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the show today. Hopefully you've gained something that will help you in your own career. Uh, don't forget to listen to our past shows and past guests uh, through all the different uh, mediums that we mentioned before. Next week um, I'll welcome on uh, Bill uh, Voigt and then Mike uh, Mikalovich uh, to the show. Uh, Mike's a returning guest. Uh, uh, Bill is a founder and principal consultant for Nimbus uh, Communications Consulting, and like I said it's Mike has been on the show before with uh, the Rule Breakers of and also a founder of the Profit First Professionals. And I know he's got a new book coming out. We'll love to talk about that. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2.